Hi guys, Tina Anderson with Battleground Fitness, TinaAndersonOC.com, and my monthly podcast. This is Get Fit, Stay Healthy. Welcome to show number 56, and boy, am I fortunate, which means you're fortunate, of course, because here you are. I just finished Craving by Dr. Omar Manajewala. Yes, the book is called Craving. I had an advanced copy. But you can get the finished and very polished version starting April 30th on Amazon, and I highly recommend it. Dr. Manajewala is an expert on addictions, on compulsive behaviors, on cravings. He has appeared on tons of shows, I mean the big time shows, as in who do we talk to about Michael Jackson's addictions and his death, stuff like that. That's how big he is. And he's also, you can tell, a guy that really cares about what he's doing. I mean, a genuine uh, doctor, a psychiatrist who really is trying to make a difference, and I'm so fortunate that he he carved out you know a couple questions for me, sent me some answers. They're recorded. I'll take that, and I will review the book as well for you, the critical points. But really, if this is your area, you just need to get the book. This is my journey, in case you don't know, and why I'm so passionate about something like this. I I guess you could say sort of, kind of cured myself of bulimia in the sense that I didn't know what it was. I was not a laxative person. I did not go exercise for 20 hours, but I did probably the grossest one of all, which is to binge and purge. Yes, I did. And I didn't know what I was doing when my friend introduced it to me. Uh, And I don't really know exactly how I got there. I know it was some pretty awful stuff I was dealing with as an adolescent, but you know, whatever. The deal The deal is I was there and it was self-medicating in a way to try to have control. Bottom line is I want to be transparent about this and I want to help other people on this journey because if you're an emotional or compulsive eater or if you have some other addiction even, really this could apply to you as well, you know, I know it's debilitating, it's humiliating, it puts you in a deep, dark hole at certain points of your life or your day or your week or whatever. And when you come out of that, you're all ready to go and be on top of it again. And and it you go back into it again in this vicious cycle. It's critical work for me. It's important work. It's part of what I do in fitness and media. So I am so, I already said this, grateful to this incredible psychiatrist who is sharing all of his expertise in a way that will help you to understand this in sort of a clinical way. So you can really feel a little bit better about the fact that your brain is kind of going crazy on you. Because for those of us that are successful, and a lot of a lot of people that have addictions are extremely successful in so many areas of their lives, right? You have this one area that you can't control. It overpowers you. And it's beyond frustrating. It's sickening. It makes you sick. It really does. So I am going to give you as much as I can, really, in a short podcast, maybe tease you enough into getting this book. If this is not for you, please be aware of this and share it uh, with love if there's someone who needs it, because if we help one person, that person hopefully will share their story and help someone else. So I will turn it over to Dr. Omar Manajewala as he tells us a little bit about himself and why now, why this book, why call it Craving. I'm a Duke-trained psychiatrist and addiction medicine specialist and have spent most of my career helping people deal with their cravings. I live in Charlotte, North Carolina and work in Los Angeles. I'm the chief medical officer of CADASIS and I'm former Hazelden medical director. 
and I'm the author of the new book from Hazelden Publishing called Craving, Why We Can't Seem to Get Enough. I wrote the book because over the years that I've been practicing addiction medicine, I've helped thousands of people deal with cravings of all kinds. And as I did, I, I noticed that it's, it's very difficult to find accurate, scientifically sound information about where cravings come from and what really works to help reduce or eliminate them. There's, there's plenty of misinformation, but there was a real gap when it came to solid, research-based information on how to kick cravings. For example, there's no shortage of diet books or articles that offer suggestions on what you should eat or drink. But what everyone really knows is that although many of the suggestions will work in the short term, in the long run, we almost always revert back to old behaviors, often worse than when we started. So what was needed was not another book on quitting smoking or drinking or on what diet to eat, but rather how to address the core issue that results in all of our cravings. In other words, to get at the thing that undermines our success every time, no matter what it is that we crave. And it turns out that most of what works to kick cravings for alcohol and drugs also works for cravings of all sorts, that cravings are much more similar than they are different. So after reviewing thousands of articles and speaking to researchers and reviewing my own experience as an addiction expert, I set out to digest everything we know about cravings down to specific, actionable suggestions that can help a reader deal with cravings for good. So now let's get into the book. He breaks his uh, book into 10 chapters, starting with Craving, Why It Matters, and ending with a chapter called Joy, Hope, and Recovery. And in between 1 to 10, he addresses neurotransmitters and the real brain science of craving and decision-making, how thoughts, actions, and experiences change your brain, why groups are essential, and how simple actions can reduce cravings among much, much more. And obviously, I can't go over every line, chapter, and page that I highlighted and flagged, and there were a lot of things that I highlighted and flagged, but I do want to pick out some of the gems and some of the times that I had aha moments and found a new perspective, revelation, and certainly enhanced clarity about all of this. And you know, I've done a lot of research, a lot of reading, a lot of work on all of this kind of stuff. So let's start with the fact that cravings involve, according to him, emotions, memories, sense of loss of control, reward, obsession, and reinforcement. However, according to Dr. M, most of the addicts he has worked with aren't seeking reward. They're seeking relief. Quote, the overwhelming biological process in addictive craving is really a complex set of desperate survival-based drives to feel normal. Does that resonate with you? To feel normal. Studies show that if you wait to take action until you have a craving, you are already behind the eight ball. The ideal time to address your craving is when you're not actively craving. So that's one of the first things I want to point out about what I read in the book Craving is that there are a lot of reasons why we crave, but the majority of the times it seems to be that we're not seeking to reward ourselves, we're seeking to find relief from whatever it is. And I think that's probably pretty common, but also the fact that you have to work on this when you're not craving something. The book explains that thinking changes brain matter. And since your brain affects your cravings, 
it's essentially the source and beginning point for your recovery. So this is sort of a different way of looking at things, right? We're thinking about our brain first because it affects everything. In fact, in the book, he quotes research indicating that the human brain contains about 100 billion nerve cells or neurons and at least as many supporting cells and each individual neuron can have many synapses. So think about it. The brain is this extremely highly networked functioning entity and even small, small changes in one area can result in dramatic changes overall. So the takeaway from from what I can tell from the book uh, is that while your goal is not to change your brain, it still changes from thoughts, actions, and experiences. So you want to use those to your advantage so you can gain a deeper understanding towards designing a program to heal yourself. And maybe you'll have to re-listen to that because I had to reread several sections to really take it in. It's deep stuff. But we're looking at not trying to change your brain, but realizing that your thoughts, actions, and experiences are changing matter in your brain, which changes what you do, right? So it's, it's sort of like the cart before the horse, the horse before the cart. But our brains are lying to us. And he talks about that a lot. They distort the way we evaluate situations. So we really have to tackle this from a different perspective. And that's what makes this book, Craving, unique and valuable. And that's why when I read through it, I had a lot of aha moments. And like I said, I have several books where I've had that happen to understand sort of uh, food addiction and uh, overeating and emotional eating and binging and purging, all that stuff. But the perspective and the way that this is described from Dr. Manajewala is definitely different. So he, he gives you some insight that I haven't heard before. I asked him about the source of cravings, whether they can be isolated to emotional or physical only. And this is what he had to say about self-destructive behaviors. Nearly all cravings have multiple causes. It's fairly rare to have a craving that's just caused by one specific thing. The reality is that while much is made of hormonal imbalances, and, and yes, they can play a role, most of our cravings are caused by a mix of psychological, environmental, social, and biological factors. Now, the classic example of this is alcohol cravings. We know that these are heavily genetic. We know this from genetic research and from adoption studies where identical twins are adopted into different families. They will crave alcohol even if they're raised in a completely non-alcoholic environment. But we also know that environment plays a role in increasing cravings and that social and peer pressures influence cravings. Advertisements, early childhood experiences, and psychological factors all play roles. That's why the oversimplified charts that you'll see on Facebook and on Pinterest that say, if you're craving X, you need to eat Y, are so often off base. The suggestion that merely substituting foods will work is based on a, a very false premise. And that premise is that most cravings are caused by deficiencies. And there is no scientific evidence to support most of what you see in those charts. So yes, environmental influences are very significant. In the book, I talk about a particular mall walker who was doing really well until she started to smell the Cinnabon uh, in the food court. 
So smells can play a major influence on cravings, and there's even some sound research, which I cite in the book, on a specific smell that is pleasant, but that can actually reduce food cravings. So the truth is that stress plays an enormous role, which is why meditation and exercise can help so much with cravings. And what we call distorted thinking plays a tremendous role. That's why the book emphasizes how to identify the type of thinking that leads to cravings and how to change that. And I'd also add that emotional eating is a factor, although it is somewhat misnamed. Uh, we all have emotions. Suppressing these emotions will not lead to better eating or to better management of other cravings. A better term is actually non-emotional eating, and that's the eating that results from not adequately expressing and addressing our emotions. So now we know it's not just emotional, it's biological as well, and now we know why it's so difficult to deal with this. On page 101, or somewhere near that, because I have an advanced copy of the book, you'll find strategies for managing cravings with the following list. Create a sense of belonging. Find people with a similar problem. Inventory your behaviors. Be accountable to someone. See things differently. Be helpful and practice a genuine love for others. Meditate. Ask for help. Be teachable. I won't elaborate on each of these because... There's a lot of information. They all have terrific and pertinent information. Related to that, I asked him about cheat meals because I use them when I was with my nutritionist. I had great success, but my cheat meals turned into cheat days, and they weren't as easy to manage as I had hoped. And I wanted to get his feedback and his opinion on the use of cheat meals. So the premise of your question, and it's a really great question, is can you cheat? Can you splurge every once in a while? Can you have just a bite of that chocolate cake after dinner without eating the whole thing? Or, or maybe can you have a bite of that chocolate cake without driving to the Ben and Jerry's and buying a pint or even a gallon? Most diets are based on a concept that not only can you cheat, but if you are to be successful, you have to cheat. And again, this is mostly based on junk science. The truth is that just like with alcohol, some people have a problem but can return to occasional drinking, and some people simply cannot, especially if they've developed addiction. Any diet that tells you that you can't cheat, or that you can cheat, or even that you must cheat is missing the key point. We are all different with respect to how we handle eating off plan or using any craved substance. So the real missing truth here is that what's needed is not a specific one-size-fits-all prescription on what exactly you should eat, but rather an honest assessment of what happens to you when you take certain behaviors. Even the word cheat itself is misleading, since you aren't really cheating anyone. If you can successfully eat that way, it's not cheating. It's doing what makes sense for your body and your mind. And if you can't successfully eat that way, you aren't cheating either. You're just lying to yourself. So the question is, how can you stop the dishonesty that's fueling the cycle itself, telling yourself that it'll be different this time, that you're just going to do this thing that you committed to not doing one more time? So I'd say at the heart of the matter, it comes down to this. You can eat, drink, smoke, or use whatever you want. You just have to change what you actually want. And that is completely possible for nearly everyone, but it takes the kind of suggestions that I'm making in this book. So instead of changing what you drink 
or eat or use, why not change what you want? True, you, you probably won't ever completely eliminate the desire to have that piece of tiramisu, but you can drastically reduce its influence over your decisions. You can reduce the influence that that piece of cake sitting on the table next to you has over your decision-making process. And if you do that, you can begin to gently and effectively step off the roller coaster of fad diets and yo-yo relapses of all kinds. Right. So I will be uh, rethinking <laughs> my suggestion of cheat meals with my client and a lot of people actually after that. So insightful. I would also draw your attention to page 128 or somewhere around that and a section called the Johari window. I've come across, you know, similar sections in books and articles in regards to dealing with emotions and needs, or actually unmet emotions and needs. But this approach is more powerful and I think more effective because there's a visual component and it gets you to, you know, write some things down on paper, which is really important. It's self-reflection. I just haven't seen it this way. And I believe that it will probably make you uncomfortable, even more important for you to do it for your healing. This section alone, I think, will change many lives. Shortly after that is a section entitled, The Risks That Accompany Success. Now, I have fallen trap to this one several times. For example, this was my self-talk and how I was tricking myself. I'm on my way home, and I could run a couple errands or not. I really don't need to run them. But my thought is, if I do run them, I'll be close to one of my favorite bakeries. Oh, I could, you know, I'm fine. I could stop in. I should get some cookies for the boys. They've had a tough day. And I, I don't need to have cookies. I mean, I'll just get them for them. Maybe I'll have a bite, but that's it, and I'll save the rest or whatever. So, of course, I go back and forth in my mind, and I trick myself into believing, yeah, I'll go get the cookies. It's not for me. It's for my boys. And you know what happens? Of course, I have one bite or two bites that turn into one cookie, which maybe sent me back down the sugar uh, walk, the journey of too much sugar. So I trick myself into, I need to run some errands, yeah, and then if I go there, I'll be by the bakery and et cetera, et cetera. Or I'll be somewhere where there's leftovers at a party, and they'll say, oh, we have leftovers. You want to take some home? Of course, I'll take the extra brownies. My kids love brownies. Well... The brownies are in the car on the way home. I've already grabbed two or three of them, believing that I won't, but in the back of my mind, thinking I could have just one bite. So this happened to me many times after I thought I had enough information and understanding of my issues to control them, but I really didn't. What this book tells you is that it's not enough for complete healing. My brain, my mind, they were playing tricks on me, and he talks about that a lot in this book. Page 137, or around page 137, was one long highlight, with this sentence being one of my favorites. Quote, the experience of thousands of recovering people confirms that finding release from cravings is a fundamental change in what you want, which is produced by what you do, not the other way around. I think that's really profound. A fundamental change in what you want, which happens by what you do. So I need to stop myself. The craving is already there. That's why I got in trouble, right? 
I have to take a different way home where I won't even go by that. I have to not have errands to run at a certain time when I know I'm going to be hungry after work. I have to think way in advance. And as I change that pattern, my brain starts to change with it. And next thing you know, I feel good about that. And I get home without the cookies, if that makes sense. Think about the number of times someone says they hate to exercise, right? I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. But then they start doing it and they start doing it consistently. Next thing you know, they're a fitness freak. They're a fitness enthusiast. They start to look forward to their workout. And that can happen for you too. Feeling free of cravings and enjoying the process. And that is what Dr. Manajuala is talking about. Chapter 9 is called Apparently Irrelevant Decisions and how addicts make decisions that don't seem to be related to their cravings, but that actually lead to a relapse. The chapter includes actions that prevent and manage cravings and concludes with another powerful exercise in self-reflection. And this equally powerful statement, quote, if you don't meet your needs in a healthy way, you will meet them artificially. He then lists five areas of need. And since they are needs, satisfying them is not an option. Let me repeat that. What he says is they will find a way to get satisfied. You can ignore them for a while, but you won't be able to ignore them forever. It's a need. It has to be satisfied. So yeah, you can fight off the cigarette or the Ben and Jerry's for a while, but if you're, and here's one of the needs that is mentioned, one of the categories, if your emotional adventure need is not satisfied, you won't have a choice. Eventually, you'll find a way to meet it. It's a need, and it will be satisfied one way or another. OMG, for me, so profound. And I'm not sure quite why this makes so much more sense because I certainly know about satisfying needs. I think it's the way he lists the needs and the way that you have to you have to put a number to them as far as how much you've satisfied them, one through five. And I think some of the needs make you dig in deeper and really think about how you're living your life and what is missing. Because we all know we go to, you know, food trances or you find your drug of choice as a way to escape and feed something that's missing or feel better. But again, it's just the way Dr. Manajawala describes this thing that makes it empowering and provides so much clarity. Love it. Finishing with Chapter 10, we read that successful long-term release from cravings and addictive behaviors results from about, here we go, 5%, 5 of what you stop doing and 95% of what you start doing. Wow. So instead of trying to constantly stop what you're doing, it's 95% of what you start doing. That's profound because I think we tackle it from the other way. That also means that you will live in the uncomfortable zone for a while for a lot of reasons, several of which are listed at the top of page 157 and 159, or close to those. It's good stuff. It's terrifying if you haven't ever dealt with this. Uh, but it, again, it's the stuff you have to do. I mean, how bad do you want to change? How much, how important is it to you? And that leads me to the final chapter that has several subsections. 
and towards the end, a very poignant couple of paragraphs about how maintaining a sense of control is so important for some people that they will destroy themselves and everyone around them probably just to maintain that feeling. The fear of change is paralyzing. And the belief that they can be so much more than they already are, more than they can imagine, they can feel so good and so complete, it's inconceivable. And thus it's shunned and sadly missed. That coupled with believing that the little changes don't make a difference. The little things don't make a difference. That all of that can be disastrous in the recovery process. It's really sad. And I do want to mention just briefly, of course, there are people addicted to exercise. And that can fall in the category of bulimia, over-exercising, of course. And I do see it. I do see the neurotic uh, desire, need to exercise, and the panic when someone doesn't. So I haven't mentioned that in all of this stuff, but of course it's there. Of course it's unhealthy. Of course it's, it's destructive, just like all the rest of the addictions. But I don't want to end on, you know, a downer, because there's so much more in this book that is will be life-changing. And honestly, it is cerebral in places. I'm very visual, so I have to reread things and look at you know the pictures and process it that way. Plus, the two charts that you use for self-evaluation are totally worth it. Really, if you suffer from an addiction, if you live or deal with someone who does, if you're a personal trainer or work in a related industry, this is a great book for you. This is actually a must-have for you. You'll feel better about your chances of complete recovery or for someone you know. You'll be able to pass along a lot of tips. You'll feel better about your struggle while you work towards your healing. And you'll have a better understanding and more compassion for those who suffer. So we'll wrap up with three general tips from the doctor regarding cravings and self-destructive behavior, and then I'll jump in with how to reach him and a preview of the next episode. In the book, I make suggestions that need to be used together in order to reduce cravings. That's because cravings work on different aspects of your mind and your decision-making process. You need to combine the suggestions so your brain can't trick you out of success. But to list just a few tips, I'd say first, get honest with yourself. If you really believe that the next diet you try, the next gym membership you join, the next New Year's resolution you make is going to stick because this time you really mean business, you may be deluding yourself. What undermines success is not a lack of willpower or willingness right now. It's the things that sneak up on you later and trick you to change your mind. Are you willing to take a hard look at the ways you lie to yourself and change the way you think? It's also really important to get accountable. I absolutely love tools like MyFitnessPal and Lose It and Craving Journals because they help us to bring someone else into our decision-making process. The importance of being accountable to someone else is something that successfully sober alcoholics and addicts figured out a long time ago. And they work for carbohydrate and other food cravings as well. Overeaters Anonymous and other programs that emphasize the role of a sponsor uh, are absolutely correct in suggesting that. And then finally, I'd add that the value of groups cannot be overestimated. Groups can do what individuals cannot. Groups like Weight Watchers or yoga classes or other fitness classes 
or Overeaters Anonymous meetings, or even gatherings that you may find on meetup.com can make the difference between success and heartbreak. So the simple truth is this. Your cravings are complex, and no one thing is going to take care of them. No matter how attractive that chart is that tells you to eat X when you're craving Y. But if you combine the suggestions that research shows are effective, you really can kick your cravings and get and stay on track. Thank you so much to Dr. Manajawala. Bless you for your work. Thank you so much. The book release is April 30th, by the way. Check out cravingbook.com or find Craving Book on Facebook for links to purchase, more information on the doctor. You can see some of his interviews on YouTube. There's a lot there. May will take us back into fitness with something I haven't done before. Call it podcast personal training. Subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And please forward with love if you know of someone who could use inspiration, motivation, and information. And especially this one, Craving, the book Craving. And again, cravingbook.com or cravingbook on Facebook. This is life-changing. This is life-saving. Again, please forward this if you think someone needs to hear this or know about it. All right. On a positive note, go rock your world, people. And until we talk again, make good choices, set appropriate boundaries, spread some good vibrations in the world, find something to laugh about every day, every day. And please, 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 please manage your stress before it manages you. Talk to me at tinaandersonoc.com, my online home and the place to hang where I help you live your life in the groove. tinaandersonoc.com, subscribe to my blog, shop, mega coolio stuff, uh, eventually some giveaways, writing my groove package right now. I'll be waiting. This is Get Fit, Stay Healthy, asking you to do the same.